0: Good morning. Please take out your copy of the scriptures, turn to Luke chapter 8. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, please feel free to use one of the pew Bibles that you'll find in your row. Luke chapter 8 is on page 813. Our passage this morning is Luke 8 verses 49 through 56. 56. But I'm going to start by reading from back in verse 40, since the narrative unit really begins there. And so Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56, hear the word of the Lord. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we are sinners and that you are a holy God. And thus the only thing we deserve from you is judgment and wrath for our sins but you have sent your Son to save sinners like us, and you've given us your word that we might know of these glorious truths. And so we praise you for our Bibles, that even this morning we can hear you through your word by going to our Bibles. And so we ask, Lord, that you would grant to us humble hearts in this hour, that we would eagerly and attentively hear what you have to say through your word and humbly put ourselves under its authority and give us eyes to see the glory of your Son, and particularly in his death and in his resurrection for sinners like us. We ask this all in his holy name. Amen. Well, Last week, you'll remember we covered the first half of that passage we just read. Dealing mostly with the healing of the woman with the discharge of blood. So let me just quickly recap what happened there so we're all on the same page. Uh, Jesus, his disciples, they arrive on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and there is this big crowd eagerly awaiting them there. But the one most anxious for his arrival is a synagogue ruler named Jairus. Because back at home... His twelve year old daughter is severely ill, she is on the verge of death. So he falls down at Jesus' feet and begs him to come to his house as soon as possible. We talked last week about how people as socially significant as Jairus, a prominent and well known man in that community because he was basically in charge of the local synagogue, and life back then revolved around the synagogue. People with that much social standing are not supposed to be bowing before others like that. And particularly Jairus. As a ruler of the synagogue, he would have been part of the Jewish religious establishment who, by and large, they hate Jesus. And so a man like him, oh, he's definitely not supposed to be bowing before Jesus in humble submission like that. But when you're desperate... None of that really matters. Those three words in verse 42, she was dying. That's the only thing that mattered to him at this point. All that other stuff, social status and reputation and image, all that stuff quickly fades into insignificance. Every parent in the room, I assume is familiar to at least some degree with that feeling of, I would give anything, everything, everything for my child to be well. And so he falls before Jesus. He's begging him to come and heal his daughter. And Jesus agrees. That's exactly what Jairus was hoping for that morning when he left his house. I'm so relieved. I'm so relieved that he's coming because once we get there, I'm sure I know he's going to heal her. Just like he's healed all these other people who have come to him I believe that he's going to do this. And so they're heading over to Jairus' house. They've got to kind of navigate their way through the crowds. And so you can imagine, they're like, excuse me, coming through, coming through, make way. This is important. This is an emergency. Then all of a sudden, Jesus stops. Because somebody touched him. Turns out that also in the crowd that day was another person With a dire situation, this woman, who had suffered much with this bleeding condition. It was a condition that had caused her to suffer in every aspect of her life for 12 long years. But it's not just physically in her body, but also financially. She had spent every dollar trying to get better, but to no avail. Socially, she was ceremonially unclean, and so nobody was allowed to touch her. Nobody wanted to be near her. And spiritually, because of her condition, well, she wasn't allowed in the temple or the synagogues or in any gathering of God's people. It was a disease that had consigned her to a hopeless and helpless life of misery for 12 long years. But she believed that Jesus could help her. She believed that Jesus could heal her. And so she was the one who touched him from behind, and trying to do it secretly, remain hidden, given her condition. But Jesus doesn't allow her to remain hidden. He calls her forth so that she might proclaim to all who are gathered what happened. So that everybody would know that she was now cured. She is now ceremonially clean. She can now be a normal member of society again. And so that she would know that it wasn't a, a superstitious touch of his garments some kind of magical power that she somehow snuck from him no it was her faith that made her well and so that she would know that her faith not only made her body well but as we talked about last week it also saved her soul and so now this woman hopeless as she was for 12 years now she can rejoice And the confident assurance of knowing that she was not only healed, now she was a daughter of the living God. Now when Jairus sees all of this happening, all of this unfolding before his eyes, you have to imagine that at at least at first, he's pretty excited. It wells up even more hope in him. Jesus just cured this lady who's been sick forever, just like that, immediately. Immediately. But there is nothing he can't do. Surely he's gonna do the same thing with my daughter. No matter how bad her illness is, no matter how close to death the doctors think she is, oh, he's gonna heal her. But then, well. Things are taking a little bit longer than I thought here. Remember verse 47? When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. But to us, that is a sentence that takes but a few seconds to read. But who knows how long that actually took in real time for the woman to declare all of these things because it's not, you know, it's not just like she was... Well, Jesus healed me. Thank you so much, Jesus. I'll see you all later. I'm going home. Now the verse tells us. She talked about why she touched him, her motives. And she talked about how she was healed. And Luke only records for us the one line that Jesus spoke in verse 48. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. But it's entirely possible that he said much more. And Luke's just summarizing it for us with that one line. But regardless of what exactly was said and how long the conversation took, I mean, just put yourself in Jairus' shoes. To him, it must have felt like hours upon hours. And his thoughts must be going in a million different directions because he's trusting that Jesus is going to do what he said he was going to do but at the same time, he's got to be battling thoughts of anxiety and impatience and frustration. Come on, lady. I, I, I'm really happy for you. I'm not trying to be rude here. The clock's ticking. We, we, we got to go. We, you can just go home. You're, you're good now. Jesus and I have to go to my house. Okay, she's on. No, no. She's starting to talk again. This is taking Forever. Because as awesome as that miracle was, and for all that's changed now in this bleeding woman's life, as far far as Jairus is concerned, his daughter is still on the verge of death. And remember, that's all that really matters to him. And that's where we pick up the story today. So let's just start by going through the narrative, just to make it easier to think through. I've split it up into five parts. That's going to be our five points for this morning. And Of course, our alliteration should always sync with the liturgical calendar. That's very important. Today is Resurrection Sunday, and so our five points are brought to you by the letter R. Point number one, the report. We start with a report from Jairus' house. But it's not the kind of report that Jairus wants to hear verse 49, while he was still speaking, and so while Jesus is addressing this woman in what to Jairus must have seemed like an endless dialogue, well now bad news arrives through a messenger from back home. Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. And so just like that, Jairus's worst fears have come true. Where there was once hope, that Jesus would come back with him to the house, heal his dying daughter. Well, now it was hopeless. She's dead. And the messenger, he tacks on his own assessment there of the situation. Well, Jairus, it's hopeless now, so do not trouble the teacher anymore. There's no point in him coming all the way back to the house. Just let him get back to his busy day. This is a tragic report. Where does the father even begin in processing the grief and sadness in a report like that? Maybe the only thing that makes news like that even more difficult to bear is that he genuinely had hope that the situation was going to be fixed. We don't know how far they were from Jairus' house, But Jesus was on the way to heal her. Oh, if only she could have stayed alive for a little longer. But then another line of thoughts begins to creep into Jairus' mind. Maybe some of you are thinking it right now. This is her fault. If that lady hadn't touched Jesus, we might already be there. And if she hadn't taken so long talking about what happened to her, my daughter might still be alive. But here's where it gets really tricky. Because Jairus can't be upset with the woman for too long before he realizes that the only reason that the whole episode took so long was because Jesus stopped everyone. And Jesus called her out to confess in order that Jesus might minister to her need. And so the one in whom Jairus trusts to heal his daughter, well, he's the same one who seemingly delays everything so now his daughter is dead. And did you catch that that juxtaposition there of the daughter's? Because it's as Jesus is saying, look at verse 48, daughter, your faith has made you well. It's as Jesus is saying that, that the report comes to Jairus, your daughter is dead. Why, Jesus, did you spend so much time ministering to that daughter, but not my daughter? You've clearly shown your love for this woman. You've shown her great favor, But Jesus, have you forgotten about me? Point number one, the report. Which brings us to point number two, the reassurance. Knowing that this report would throw him for a loop and severely test his faith, knowing that this tragic news would stab him right in the heart, well, Jesus steps in to reassure Poor Jairus, look at verse 50. Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. He doesn't say, well, I'll I'll see what I can do when I get there. No promises. No, this is a command, do not fear, only believe, that is based on a sure promise. She will be well. We've got to acknowledge. Right, that's not exactly the easiest command for Jairus to follow. Do not fear. Do not fear. Everything that I've been fearing for the last however long that my daughter would die, everything that I've been fearing has just materialized. And so, how could he not fear? Only believe. Well, I did believe, and that's why I came to you, Jesus. I did believe that you would save my sick and dying daughter, just like you've saved so many other sick people, but now she's dead. So how could he believe? She will be well. It's one thing to trust Jesus with a dying daughter. It's a whole other thing to trust him with a dead daughter. Because in one, there's a glimmer of hope, in the other, you are just hoping against hope. And so everything in this narrative is seemingly going against his believing and trusting Jesus. Right? Everything in this narrative is pointing in the direction of fear and despair and giving up. But Jairus, in spite of how impossible that command must have seemed to him in that moment, Cyrus Jairus continues to believe and trust that Jesus is going to do something. He trusts Jesus. He trusts Jesus' word. He trusts Jesus' promise. There is not a single word in this narrative about his doubts or his unbelief or his wavering. Kind of reminds us of what it says about Abraham in Romans chapter 4. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. In the same way, Jairus doesn't waver. Jairus is fully convinced that Jesus is able to do what he had promised. And that's why the story doesn't end there, with Jairus just leaving Dejected. Defeated. That's why the story doesn't end there, with Jairus giving in to the doubt and disbelief of his messenger. Oh, well, you know what? Let me just, let me not bother the teacher anymore. That's why the story continues with Jairus pressing on, continuing toward the house, continuing to trust in Jesus. Jesus. Friends, we can only imagine how in that moment, a gyrus must have found, with so many other believers have, in their greatest moments of desperation, what the old hymn puts so well, "Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Fear not, only believe, thus saith the Lord. That was enough for Jairus. Here so beautifully shows his trust in Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Point number two, the reassurance. Brings us to point number three, The ridicule. Look at the picture here. Jesus, Jairus, the crowds are following. They finally arrive at the house. But by this time, the girl's been dead for some time, enough time for word to spread about her death and for all the mourners to have gathered. Made mention of this previously in this gospel, but funerals back then were a very different scene from how we might think of them. Uh, There would have been professional whalers, uh, flute players, instrumentalists. There would have been this loud, kind of noisy, somewhat chaotic scene, quite different from funerals in our culture. And as loud and as noisy as your typical funeral would have been back then, you can imagine how much more amplified that would have been for the funeral of a 12-year-old girl. And so professional whalers, instrumentalists, family, friends, everybody gathered. Verse 52, all were weeping and mourning for her. It's to that scene that Jesus arrives and he says, do not weep for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. They laughed. That's not like a, a nervous laugh or like a harmless chuckle, this is referring to a laugh of derision. It literally means that they laughed down at him. The King James Version says they laughed him to scorn. Other versions say they ridiculed him. So they are mocking him. They are dismissing him as a fool. Sleeping? What, do you think she's taking a nap? You're out of your mind, Jesus. We've seen her dead body ourselves. What are you talking about, sleeping? huh? But of course, Jesus wasn't referring to a nap. He was referring to what he was about to do, uh, using what was a common euphemism for death back then, falling asleep, because he was about to go and wake her up. Point number three, the ridicule. So Jesus, Jairus, Mrs. Jairus, Three of the disciples, Peter, James, John, the six of them, they go into the room where the girl lay. And that brings us to point number four the raising. Verse 54 but taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And so Jesus does two things there. First, he he takes her by the hand you remember that story where Jesus heals a centurion servant from a distance? And so we know that Jesus doesn't need to touch her to perform the miracle. But he does. He compassionately takes her by the hand as if he is gently helping her to get up. And we're not even going to go into the fact that while touching a dead body, that would have technically made him unclean because... At this point in the gospel, right, he has touched lepers and he has touched caskets. He's gone into Gentile lands. He's healed a man living among the tombs. He spends all his time with tax collectors and sinners. And so, uh, as Luke's reader, we are well aware at this point that as the pure and holy Son of God, he can't be defiled. Unclean things don't make him unclean, rather, he makes unclean things clean. But the second thing he does here, he speaks to her. Child, arise. Mark, in his version, records first the original Aramaic. Remember, the New Testament is written in Greek, but the people spoke in Aramaic. And so Mark has the original Aramaic of Talitha Kumi. Talitha. It's a term of endearment. Kind of like how we might address our daughters as sweetheart. So this might have been the kind of thing that her parents would have said to her if she was still sleeping, but they had somewhere to go. Tell us the kumi. We've got to get ready to leave soon. Child, arise. And just like that, at his word... Verse 55, her spirit returned and she got up at once. And you see, friends, that makes this story a very fitting capstone to this chapter. Because you remember what's come before. You've got Jesus calming the storm. That's a miracle in which he shows his authority over the natural realm, even the uh, most powerful forms of natural disaster. And then the garrison demoniac, that's a miracle in which he shows his authority over the spiritual realm, even the most powerful forms of demonic possession, a legion of demons. And then you've got the woman with the issue of blood, that's the miracle in which he shows his authority over disease, even the most helpless and hopeless forms. And here, in our story, here we have a miracle in which he shows his authority over death. Even this most tragic of cases, uh, the death of a young girl. He raises her to life simply by his word. Point number four, the raising. That brings us to point number five, which is the result. Because the story is not quite over yet. The narrative finishes with Jesus giving two commands. Commands. First, he directs, uh, presumably to her parents, who are still in the room, that she should be given something to eat. Now, I haven't read the medical literature and all the nutritional data and stuff like that, but I assume this to be the case, that if you've been dead for a bit and you're raised back to life, that you probably wake up hungry. But this, this is more than that. This is... Him, Just like when he took her by the hand. This is him demonstrating his compassionate care to this girl. With the same Jesus who is going to compassionately feed the 5,000 in the next chapter. Well, here he focuses on feeding the one. Right? The one girl that he just raised from the dead. And it also shows that she's not a ghost. She's not like an apparition or a hallucination Maybe Jairus and his wife, they're just so exhausted and so drained from the events of the day that they're just imagining that she got up. No, this is not a dream. She is a real, live human being, and human beings need to eat. Here's a thought exercise for you. You know what would have happened to her if after being raised from the dead, she never ate? She would have died Again. After she was raised, she was just a regular, ordinary human being who needed to eat just like the rest of us. But second, look at verse 56. He charges the parents, this is Jairus and his wife, to not tell anyone about what had happened. Obviously, he's not trying to keep what happened as a secret because, I mean, literally, there is a funeral going on for her outside. Like, at some point, she's going to step outside and... Everybody's going to go home. The reports of her death have been greatly exaggerated. What would remain a mystery, though, to the multitudes is not that the girl is alive. What would remain a mystery to the multitudes is exactly what happened. Maybe the people went home that day thinking, well, I guess she was asleep. Good thing they caught it early enough. But lest the messianic fervor get out of control... Right, with the crowds demanding more and more and more in terms of miraculous deeds like this, well, Jesus tells the parents, "We'll keep what happened a secret. Jesus didn't come as a miracle worker to wow the crowds. He came to seek and save the lost. Right, so to that end, I want you to tell no one what has happened. And so you've got the report Jesus is ministering to the woman he just healed, but then a bad report comes from Jairus' house, your daughter is dead. You've got the reassurance, even while his own messenger is telling him to not trouble the teacher anymore. Well, Jairus has given these comforting words from Jesus himself. Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. The ridicule. Jesus arrives, tells everyone that the girl is only sleeping And they mock him. The raising, Jesus goes into the room, takes the girl by the hand, speaks to her, child arise, and she does. And then the result? Well, the result is that she's alive and well. She's back to full health, clearly demonstrated by the fact that she's now eating some food. But the parents are told to keep quiet about what happened lest it interfere with Jesus' greater mission. That's our story of Jairus' daughter. Let me give you four takeaways now from this story. Four ways in which we ought to think and act and live differently as a result of studying this narrative. Takeaway number one is that suffering is no respecter of persons. We should know that suffering is no respecter of persons. Of persons. Now this first takeaway is technically not just from this week's story, it's also from last week's story, it's the two weeks combined. Because remember, these two stories are inseparably interwoven. Not just in terms of Luke's presentation, right, with the stories literally interrupting each other. Not just in terms of time and space, but also in terms of the common desperation that ties these two characters together. The woman is desperate because she's been suffering with this terrible medical condition for what seems like forever. And Jairus is desperate because his only daughter is dying. And you see that common desperation, it's highlighted all the more when you think about just how different on pretty much every other front these two people were. Like, if you had scanned the crowd on that day, you'd have a hard time finding two people who were more unlike than these two. The woman is a woman. Jairus is a man. You should be thankful for the deep insights that I provide to you. The woman... She is dirt poor. She has spent all her living trying to get better. Jairus, on the other hand, he is most likely a very wealthy man. She's on the fringe of society. She would not have been allowed in the synagogue, given her condition. He, on the other hand, he was highly respected, and when it came to the synagogue, he basically ran the place. She probably had no family. Jairus is a family man. Got a wife and a lovely daughter. She was a nobody, a social outcast. We don't even know her name. He was a big deal. He was well known. And so Luke records his name. Humanly speaking, she has nothing and he's got everything. They were very different people. But here's the thing. When it comes to suffering, it doesn't matter if you are a poor, outcast woman like her or the ruler of the synagogue like him, because suffering is no respecter of persons. And so their dire, desperate, hopeless, helpless circumstances of suffering, that's what unites them in this narrative. You may have noticed another way in which Luke intentionally links these two characters together in their suffering. There's that small, seemingly in, insignificant and trivial detail that Luke throws in there for us about her age. Verse 42, he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age. Well, Luke is—is is that important? You may remember the story of the widow at Nain's son being raised from Luke chapter 7. You remember how old he was? I don't either, because Luke doesn't tell us. And then in the next chapter, Luke chapter 9, there is a story in which a man comes to Jesus asking him to heal his son. You probably see where I'm going with this. Luke doesn't tell us his age either. So why does Luke, who ordinarily does not tell us the age of the children who are healed by Jesus, why does Luke tell us her age? Sure, it's speculation because Luke doesn't say, but I don't think it's a reach at all. Luke is connecting for us these two characters in their desperation, in their suffering, in yet another way. Because in spite of the fact that they began the day as polar opposites, well, they've now both got 12-year-old problems. And so you see, friends, all of those things that we think are so important in terms of separating us from one another, all those external differences that our eyes are often so quick to be drawn to, all of those things at the end of the day just serve as this very shallow facade. Because tragedy can rip through that external facade. And then what do you see? What do you see in the story? You see a rich, respected man who lives in a sin-cursed world and is suffering much. And you see a poor, outcast woman who lives in a sin-cursed world and is suffering much. They're the same. Because suffering is no respecter of Persons. And of course, it's not just Jairus and this woman. The same holds true for each and every one of us. We all live in a sin cursed world, and thus, regardless of of age, sex, wealth, health, education, job, family, we will all suffer. Some of us right now are happy and healthy and seem to have it all put together. Not all that unlike who Jairus once was. And others of us right now, we're, we're sick. And we're miserable. And we're depressed. Not all that unlike this woman. But again, suffering is no respecter of persons. That's because the root cause of all of our suffering sin and its curse, that's something that plagues each and every one of us, regardless of external differences. And so regardless of how we're doing right now in this moment, friends, it is inevitable that as a result of living in a sin-cursed world, suffering will strike each of us in one way or another. And ultimately, it is inevitable That as a result of living in a sin-cursed world, we will die. Suffering and death awaits each and every one of us, regardless of who we are, regardless of how we're doing today. Takeaway number one, suffering is no respecter of persons. Which brings us to takeaway number two, which is that Jesus' resurrection is our ultimate hope in all suffering. Jesus' resurrection is our ultimate hope in all suffering. Here's the thing about this story, the raising of Jairus' daughter. I think it's one of the most spectacular miracles in the entire Bible. But at the same time, if we just take it at face value it's really not that big of a deal. Because sure, Jesus raises her from the dead. Sure, Jesus spectacularly ministers to the suffering of a father who just lost his daughter. Yes, Jesus compassionately returns Jairus' daughter to him. I'm not minimizing any of that. But at the end of the day, even as Jesus greatly alleviates this suffering, Well, Jairus and his daughter still live in a sin-cursed world of suffering. They would suffer again. They would deal with sadness and illness and tragedy and calamity again. And a day would come soon enough when either Jairus' daughter wept at his funeral or more tragically, Jairus would have to mourn his daughter's death once again. Suffering, death, it eventually catches up with us all, even those of us who have been raised temporarily from the dead. And so, this miracle, right, like in and of itself, it really isn't that big of a deal. It is only forestalling the inevitable. It is just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. If we take this miracle at face value, yeah, it's really not that big of a deal. But if we take this miracle at face value, well, friends, we are missing the point entirely. Because the main point of this miracle, the main point of this narrative, the reason this story is in our Bibles is because in this story, Jesus shows that he has the power and authority over death itself. He shows that he has the keys of death in Hades. And so it's not just about raising one girl. No, it's also a spectacular preview of what Jesus himself is going to do three days after he would be crucified on a Roman cross in rising again. It's not just giving this one girl a few more decades of life before she dies again. It's pointing to how he is going to rise again as the first fruits of all those in him who will live forever. We know that Christ having been raised from the dead, will not die again. And so, all who are in him. So all of this, this entire narrative, is a foreshadowing of the fact that Jesus would destroy death and ultimately end all suffering for those who trust in him. I said earlier that our suffering comes from the curse of sin. Well that's not just the problem of sin like out there, that's also the problem of sin in here. Right? And that each and every one of us has sinned against the holy God. And so in that sense, right, the suffering that we experience in this life, it's just a small foretaste of the eternal suffering that we deserve in hell because of our sins. But the good news of the gospel. Right. What this story and every story in the Bible points us to is that Jesus died for sinners like you and like me. That he took upon himself all of the sins of those who would trust in him and die in our place. That we might be forgiven. and That we might be freed from the bondage of sin's curse. So that when we die, we don't have to face an eternity of suffering for our sin. And then three days later, he rose again. He rose again to prove that our sins were indeed paid for. He rose again to prove that all who trust in him will live forever with him in this glorious place where death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things that passed away. Takeaway number two, Jesus' resurrection. Resurrection is our ultimate hope in all suffering. Friends, you will suffer. Friends, there is hope in that suffering. And so we celebrate that today, on this Resurrection Sunday. But we also celebrate that every Sunday. Because that's literally the only hope that we have in life and death. That Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. And that's what this story is all about. Takeaway number three. God's children must trust his delays. God's children must trust his delays. Now let's come back to something we brought up earlier in the narrative. That's this whole issue of the delay. The delay, Jesus allowing this woman to interrupt the trip to Jairus' house, letting Jairus' daughter die in the process, as strong as his faith was, surely in that moment, questions are arising in Jairus' head. Why? Why, Jesus, did you let her die? Don't you care about me? Have you forgotten me? But now, in retrospect, we know Jairus knows. He knows the answers to those questions. No, Jairus, Jesus most definitely has not forgotten you. Because even as things didn't go the way that Jairus had planned, well, they went exactly how Jesus planned them. And doesn't it always? show itself to be true. That God's plans indeed are infinitely higher and wiser and better and more glorious than anything that you and I can come up with. Jairus learned that. Because here's the thing. If Jairus got his way, if things went according to Jairus' plans, and Jesus heals her, sure, he'd have his daughter back for a few decades. But because of his delay, because Jesus allows her to die and then allows Jairus to witness the raising, oh, now Jairus knows that Jesus has the power over death. He's seen it with his own eyes. And so friends, Jairus would never look at death in the same way again. Years down the line, as an old man, perhaps with his only daughter clutching onto his hand, he could look death in the face, his own death, with precious, confident hope and trust in the one who years before so clearly demonstrated to him that he has defeated death. That, that is worth any amount of suffering in this life. And if Jairus had known If Jairus had known that all of that would come about, well, surely he wouldn't have minded the delay. Now, in our lives, we're not always going to be able to trace out as neat of a line as Jairus is able to hear. But friends, you see, the principle is exactly the same. Sometimes we find ourselves asking, why, God? Why did you do this? Why didn't you do that? Why am I not getting any better? Why am I still dealing with this issue? Have you forgotten me? Sometimes we ask him for something. We plead with him for something and we're met with nothing but a silent delay. But it's those moments that we as his children are called to trust him and his good providence. To trust that his timing is always perfect. To trust that behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And to fear not, only believe. Sure, we'd love to know exactly how God is going to work out all things for our good. But that wouldn't require us to trust him in faith, would it? And if nothing else, God delights when his children trust him. When his children are able to say, God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know why you're delaying. But I trust you. Nonetheless, I trust you. Takeaway number three, God's children must trust His delays. And takeaway number four. You can always bother the teacher. You remember what the messenger tells Jairus? Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Other translations have, don't bother the teacher anymore. It's probably well-intentioned, though clearly lacking in faith and knowledge. He probably thought, well, Jairus, listen, persisting in your trust in him, you're just troubling him, you're just bothering him. Surely he's got a million other things to do today. Don't bother the teacher. But as we saw in the narrative, the messenger couldn't have gotten it more wrong. But believer, you ever find yourself with the same mindset? I can't bother God with this. I made this mess. This is all my fault, and so I, I gotta deal with this on my own. I-, I can't take this to God. Or, I've been praying the same thing for years and years and years. Surely God is tired of me bothering him about this. Or, I can't go to God in repentance about this again, this sin again, surely his patience with me has run out. But, dear brothers and sisters, you can always bother the teacher. Our God is a God who bends his ears towards his people. He is a merciful and compassionate God who is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. He is a God who keeps count of our tossings puts all our tears into his bottle, a God who invites us to come to him with all of our burdens, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Because here's the thing, Jesus was bothered to leave the glories of heaven. He was bothered to take on human flesh. He was bothered to die on a cross for your sins. He was bothered to bear the wrath of God for all of your iniquities a God who is going to go that far to demonstrate his love for you so clearly, you really think you can bother him with your earnest cries and pleas for help in your desperation? When his people come to him in faith, when his people are trusting in him, believing that he is the only one who can help them in their desperation, friends, God is never bothered by such cries. He is never bothered by his people's reliance upon him. This is to close this morning. I just want to speak specifically to those of you in this room who are going through a difficult season, a season of trials and suffering. Maybe it's a season of great sickness, maybe it's a season of darkness where you feel. Distant from the Lord. Maybe you're in a season of mourning. Maybe you're in a season where you are staring death in the face. Maybe it's something else entirely. Three things that you need to know from these takeaways. First, uh, Jesus, his resurrection. That is the only ultimate hope that you or I or any of us have because his resurrection secures for us the ultimate end to all suffering. And so fear not, only believe. A second, this trial, whatever you're going through, and every aspect of your life has been ordered, orchestrated, by a loving, heavenly Father for your good, whether you can see the ultimate purpose in it or not. And so even as he is seemingly delaying in deliverance, You must continue to trust him. And third, in the meantime, while you wait, and ultimately, while you await eternal glory, dear child of God, by all means, please bother the teacher. He invites you to do so. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. He invites you to come to him with the most hopeless and helpless of cases because he loves you. He demonstrated that love for you beyond all doubt by dying on the cross and rising again in victory. So dear child of God, bother the teacher with all of your cares and all of your burdens. Father, we thank you for this glorious narrative that so clearly points us to your son's victory in his death and his resurrection over all that we have to fear. Father, we pray that you would grant to us, your people, just a great trust in that resurrection With that in Christ, we might have hope. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.